0: Hello, No Code Nation. I'm Ayush, and you're listening to my No Code story. And this is not your typical entrepreneurship podcast. Here, you get to listen to real people who are building cool stuff all without writing a single line of code. This is the future of independent entrepreneurship, and you have a front row seat. Before we get into today's episode, I have a request to make. I hope this podcast has helped you discover new stories people and frameworks. If you like what you hear, do me a favor and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. This will help the pod get discovered by more people and it lets me know that we're on the right track. Now, onto the show. Today's episode is with the co-founder of InstaDeck, Mariano Guerra. Mariano has a long career in tech and research and he brings his experience to bear in this conversation and with his product, of course, InstaDeck. The interesting thing is how Mariano and I got introduced. If you've been listening to the pod for a while, you know that my co-host Seth and I recently published a five-part no-code history lesson series. In the first episode, we referenced a book published in 1982 that talked about the need to enable software development without programming. Mariano, a listener of the pod, immediately wrote back to me saying he found something from even earlier, from the 1950s, that referenced an abstraction concept, similar to how low-code abstracts layers from having to code your own piece of software. Really cool stuff, and I love people that get into the weeds like this. I think you're really gonna enjoy this one. Here's my conversation with
1: Mariano. Hi, I'm Mariano Guerra. I'm the co-founder of InstaDake, and this is my no-code story. Mariano,
0: welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to dig into InstaDeck and your story as a founder in the no code space. I just wanna start by maybe talking a little bit about how we got acquainted. So you reached out to me through Twitter after listening to one of my previous uh, podcast episodes and immediately I started to see like you were a founder yourself and I felt like the problem that you were trying to solve with data analysis and interactive visualizations just using no code tech is a very timely one but also it's it's one that i haven't heard of much in the space so typically when you talk about no code tools people are talking kind of full stack i don't really see a lot of these point solutions that that bring the best of breed in terms of what someone can do with a, a traditional you know looker or some other kind of visualization tool but just using no code tech, So I'm really excited to get into all of this, but first of all, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: All right. So let's dig into some of your origin story first. I think we were talking a little bit before this and you told me that you're based out of Germany and uh, tell me what, you know, what made you start InstaDeck in Germany and what was that founding story like? And maybe even go a few years before that to tell us, you know, what your background was before you founded InstaDeck.
1: Sure. And yeah, so as you said, I contacted you because of the previous episode of the history of no code, and I was actually researching and writing some articles about the history of no code. So the reason why I kind of interested in history and research and and stuff like that was because when, when I studied software engineering and my first job was at Intel doing prototypes for high performance computing, which was not really related, but It has some mix between academia and and industry and and prototyping and researching what's there and like creating your own kind of research. Then I moved into IBM research for a while and there I was in contact with Almaden Research Center in in IBM in the USA and there I was in contact with people that were working on something that we could now call like uh, no code. It wasn't called no code in 2010 or maybe the main project from their side was, uh, a no code tool to automate data automation and scrapping on websites for Firefox. And then after that, I got, I had this mix between like research, but also creating stuff and also entrepreneurship. And I got an opportunity to go try to create a, a product and a startup in England, so I, I just went there and i started working and i had an idea that was 2010-11 it was iot time i wanted to create some like tool that made made it easy to consume and uh, visualize iot data i called it like the twitter for iot and there i got in contact with the company and they had a lot of systems that were generating data unstructured same structured data non-relational mostly so I we kind of mixed both ideas and I created a, a product and a solution for them that the idea was to consume the data they had on multiple systems and kind of light, lightly manipulation and visualization and to create real time dashboards in the browser real time it means like whenever the event happens it gets reflected in the screen without having to reload or anything and Like for context, 2010, 2011 was the first iPad and any kind of real time charting in the router was usually flash based. So our solution was kind of the first that could run on the iPad because iPads didn't run flash. Yeah. So with that project uh, we delivered, we created some dashboards for this company to be able to visualize uh, like the real time status of, of, of of their teams working in, in the things that they were doing. Then we went with that and we implemented it for another company. And like, I started seeing a pattern, like there, there are all these uh, systems in an organization that have like different parts or partial views of the, the data and the status of the company and data is kind of messy. It's not always clean. It's not always like relational. You cannot query it. It's not always in the same place. And sometimes it's streaming. Sometimes it's like you can query it. Sometimes it's batch. It updates every hour, but sometimes it's just a stream of events. So like after implementing the project, I created a new product that was more flexible. It was called Enpharic. And the idea that was already the second version. It was the first that was kind of no code. It was a visual environment where you could like create these graphs of flows from the sources of data into the into the the visualizations and with some manipulation in the middle and with a a block based language and, and, and charts in the browser. And with that, we got our projects and we kept like learning, we kept seeing like what worked and what didn't work. And like we created another version that was called InstaDeck like five years ago. We got new projects. Like we did it's the same process. Like we, we kept seeing what worked and what didn't, and now this version, of Instatic, uh, is the four or fifth iteration of uh, around the same idea like there's people teams or organizations they have data in multiple places uh, it's the data is not always in the best shape uh, or the right shape so it requires sunlight and uh, manipulations aggregations filtering uh, and formatting stuff like that before you can send it uh, into a dashboard or the visualization and and that's how the the solution evolved, but always trying to solve the same problem. And here is where we are. It's kind of a, a long road, but but always trying to solve the same problem. And like always, I, I usually call it like last mile analytics, which is uh, you can get the the best like data pipeline, uh, the ETLs, the extract, transform, and load your data warehouse, all the all the data key password. But the the last mile, like when you get the formatting right, the filtering right, who sees what, the interactivity, like the the navigation, the formatting, the layout, what goes where, the colors, the labels and everything that requires a lot of work. And, And if that has to go through a programmer that has to do the changes, it gets really long and people even stop like trying, like they stop asking for changes because it knows it takes a long time. And so our idea is to let the end user do this this last mile analytics for themselves. Uh, And for that, you need it to be easy, accessible and no code, of course. No, that's,
0: that's awesome. It's so great to see that, you know, although you've been working on the same problem, like various iterations of the same problem for the last, what sounds like 12 plus years. It's just a testament to how important the problem is to solve, and so many people are trying to tackle the same thing. I'm all too familiar with the problem uh, that you're trying to solve because uh, in my day job, we typically deal with data in multiple disparate systems. We typically try to cobble together some kind of a visualization platform that needs additional maintenance, and that is not real-time in in a lot of situations. It depends on uh, time interval-based triggers or some other kind of trigger to pull data and before we get into that though it's interesting that you started at intel and just this week while we're speaking intel announced a pretty big investment starting with investing about 17 billion euros in germany for a semiconductor fabrication unit so it's kind of full circle when you think about uh, your story in a sense Um, but the interesting thing about some of these problems that you're trying to solve with data visualization is i looked at at the Instradec website, and one of the examples that you have is some kind of a visualization tool for visualizing an incident report, right? So that's more of a technical use case solution. But there are, I think, a lot more business use cases that could be solved using this kind of a solution that are predicated upon existing technology just because people are using what's available to them. So describe a little bit more how your solution is different from some of the others that might be, call it incumbents in the space. So you have everything from Excel that can be used to create dashboards, all the way to you know something like Domo or Looker or some of these advanced platforms that can pick up any data source, especially in enterprises that use big data, and then have these dashboards that are then updated in real time. Are you kind of on that continuum somewhere in the middle where you're easy enough to use for a smaller um no code shop to pick up and and leverage and and you don't need much of the setup like where do you fit in into this equation
1: yeah so yeah it's kind of a continuum it goes from i have a, a google sheet or an excel spreadsheet and i i have some charts in there to the other side well it's it's like a multi-dimensional continuum but to the tableau or or looker or power bi on other side the difference with, with Power BI and and Tableau is that those are what's usually called business intelligence. And the assumption usually is that the data is in a relational database, and the data is in a relational database that has a structure or that the, the two kind of controls or has enough knowledge. So that requires first that you have to do this, what's called ETL or ELT, extract, transform, and no, you have to take the data from whatever it is and change its shape and put it into the place where this tool will go look to look into it. That already is first work. And second, you have to, it has a delay already because you're like running this every five, 10, 15 minutes, an hour a day or whatever. The second is there's an extra place where your data is, or now you have like duplication of data. And of course you get benefits out of it since this, since this tool knows like uh, the structure of the data, it has control over it. And also it's a relational database, which is a really powerful way of querying data. It allows to, to quickly create what's called cubes or pivot tables, or uh, what they usually call it, slice and dice. Basically you get many features for free because the tool is able to introspect the structure and has an understanding or knows like the limits of, of the structure of the data. And the, the, the problem is that you have to put the data there. You have to do all this integration. You have this delay and, and also sometimes the price, Uh, if you're a small shop, maybe uh, the the tools look cheap, but they get expensive really fast and require some technical knowledge uh, to use. We are kind of in the middle there because we make it easy to share uh, a dashboard and with a link. So basically you share, you get a link, you sh- the other person op- opens it in a web browser and that's all you need. And is that interactive? You can, you can live click filter uh, and, and okay. use triggers to say like, if the user clicks here, do this other thing. And um, also, but also we try to avoid the repetition. Sometimes when, when you have a dashboard in, in Google Sheets or, or a spreadsheet in Excel, you get new data from whatever the data comes and you have to do manual work to get it up to date. And the idea with this static is that you do the job once, and then if you get a new file with the data, you just drop the file and automatically it updates. Not only you don't have to do the steps, the manual steps uh, any second or third time, but also uh, if somebody is looking at the dashboard at that time, they will get the update instantly pushed to them. The fact that we are not like a business intelligence tool doesn't mean that we don't work uh, with uh, relational databases. We have sources for relational databases and so you just basically query and since the result is a table we we handle it like any other and the the pro in in our case is that you can query straight from the database where the data is you don't have to do the extract and trans, uh, transform and loss uh, step but we also are kind of <laughs> web or cloud friendly in the sense that we also integrate with, with all the the cloud native sources like Firebase, Bar store, PubNav and and Ablee, all these either PubSub streaming uh, APIs or like data stores as a service, uh, they are usually called. So, um. You can create a dashboard that mixes a little bit of Excel and a little bit of uh, CSV and uh, REST API and uh, streaming from PubNab and some table or collection from Firestore. And this mixing of sources also makes us uh, a little bit unique. And uh, the fact that we can handle um, streaming and batch at the same time and uh, tables, but also like more tree-like structures like JSON all under the same tool with the same abstractions. So we're kind of in the good sense and in the bad sense, maybe like a Swiss army knife for for data uh, uh, because we kind of can handle all the cases in the same tool and you can have one dashboard that's consuming data from five five or six data sources uh, and the end user does.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because you you brought out a few key differentiators that uh, kind of set you apart from some of the existing solutions like Tableau and Power BI most of which don't really have a a good web version of the the dashboarding tools that you could use Mm. I know they all have versions of it but typically when you start to use them you cannot really manipulate data on the fly as you go you cannot really you know update links just using a web browser etc and and the experience tends to be really clunky as opposed to that, what I'm looking at right now is a, a GIF image of some of the processes that InstaDeck allows you to do with the data. And it looks like you're obviously in the browser trying to help help your users to create some kind of an ETL experience, right? Where they can actually pull the data in, but then they also inform the system what fields to use. And the interesting thing about what you said also was the ability to bring in multiple data sources, but also iterations of the same data source. So once you link it in, bring in an additional version of that file, like an updated file or something like that, or an updated data source automatically updates the dashboard. Now with all of this, obviously, and with the proliferation of data in the enterprise for one, but also just in in day-to-day usage, how are you dealing with some of the limitations that a browser presents when it comes to dealing with large data sets? Given that you're a visualization tool, I think some of this is kind of self-evident, right? Because you might be able to keep a majority of the data behind the scenes and only display like an example data set to users. And then the visualization is where most of the functionality comes to the fore. But walk us through how you're dealing with this problem of um, web browsers not being strong enough as a desktop tool to deal with large amounts of data.
1: So yeah, the, it's, a, it's a hard process, but sometimes we are pushed by by our customers because that's kind of another benefit. We are like 100% web-based. So it's not that you, sometimes our tools, you have a, like a desktop application where you create the thing and the, the web is a viewer. You can only see the results. Our tool is like the, the environment where you create and where you see the data is, uh, it's all web-based and it's the same, basically when you share, you just see a, a read-only view of, of seeing are seeing. And that w- was basically a learning process with time. Like we see that, that our users like the fact that they can have, they can just send the data kind of raw to the browser and work it there because the, the, the feedback loop is much, much faster, much, much uh, closer. And so with time we start we started learning, uh, how to optimize and how to, how to code in a way that the browser can be its best version because like browser engines are getting better and better and faster and faster. And, and there are some tricks. If you learn how to, how to write code to get more performance out of it. And we started seeing it a while ago where like some users were sending that they hit the first limit, they were sending more than 10 megabytes of JSON for each update. And we had like a default, like you cannot send more than 10 megabytes just because we, we thought like that mustn't make sense to send more than 10 megabytes per update and, and they hit it. And then, so we started like optimizing and the, the second, uh, there we learned a lot of tricks and COVID also uh, pushed us uh, a little bit because the thing with COVID we have, so we're working on the on the health ministry of of, of the Portuguese and Portugal and the thing with covid is that every day is a new data point for many things so every day the if you want to see the whole dataset every day the dataset gets bigger so they kept like making the dataset bigger and the dashboards had to handle more and more load and uh, there's no magical solution you're just learning like the the low level details of how, how the javascript engines work and how they they like the code to be for them to optimize it better or easier. Yeah. And at some point, like the, the biggest bottleneck we hit is the RAM that's allocated to a, a tab. If you have a huge data set, you are going to use a lot of RAM. And the other is the fact that the browsers uh, are like the, the most of, of the computation in your tab runs on the same thread where like the, the logic to paint the the, the document, the page runs so if you take a lot to do processing like the tab becomes unresponsive so it's kind of a a continuous learning uh, process right now we are researching like the next stage which is there there's a new work on the data world to create a new like compact memory efficient representation of of data sets it's called Apache Arrow and we are seeing if if our next iteration of the tool uses that as the native uh, data structure and because that that means that the it takes, you can fit more data set in less memory. And also that that when you have to do an operation over a column, when you know that all the values are of the same type, uh, they can optimize that. So we still have some tricks <laughs> uh, to further improve performance, but we, we have seen cases where people send tables with uh, 100,000, 200,000 rows, and uh, if your computer is... Uh, recent enough and it should be able to handle it.
0: Yeah. And I think, we might be at a point in time where some of the, some of the technology from a browser standpoint is adept enough to handle this better. I know there's, there've been improvements with memory processing on Google Chrome for the Mac, for example, which I've been looking forward to. I also realized that this week again, maybe not this week, maybe a couple of weeks back. Google announced that they're doubling the row limit for Google Sheets. So they went from two to five million rows in 2019 and now in 2022, they're going up to 10 million rows in a single Google Sheet. So that I think in itself is a testament to the fact that there may be improvements that are available today on web browsers that weren't available, say five years back, right?
1: Yeah. Also the, the, the other thing we are experimenting with is there's a unit new technology in the browser called WebAssembly, which is a a way to, to generate and run code that's more low level, but it's more CPU friendly, so it's more efficient and we We are looking into compiling like the, the, the hot parts of, of the, of the logic into WebAssembly dynamically so that it will run even faster. Like we have some prototypes, but, but there's still room and it's getting like better continuously. Of course you, you get better CPUs, like the M1 from Apple, you get uh, the computers come with more RAM. So you have more space. The, the browser engines keep getting better and. We have these new technologies like WebAssembly or Apache Arrow that are trying to like from all the things we learned over the last decade or two decades on data and and how to efficiently represent it, how to process it, or and also patterns, how how actually people want to process data. And um, all these learnings like get condensed into these new formats and these new technologies. And so there's still way to fit even more data <laughs> in the browser.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think things keep getting better over time. It's something we've we've come to expect, for better or for worse, mm. in in a lot of areas of life. Yeah. But tell me a little bit about the history lesson part of you know the the discussion earlier, because I think some of your background in sort of a research oriented role with Intel in in the beginning might have contributed to the fact that you're just genuinely interested in learning more about history. But also one thing that I noticed was when, when you wrote about, uh, you know, no code history, you started all the way back in 1959 with the geometry theorem machine. Uh, So tell us a little bit about what you wrote there, because when, when we covered it on the pod, I think the earliest reference we could find at the time was 1982. And that was just a, a book and a line that talked about being able to support people without the need for additional developers to create stuff, right? So some, some kind of a reference to, to no code. So tell us about this
1: geometry theorem machine and what you learned while writing that piece. So yeah, the, um, the, the interest of, of, of reading is something I learned and it's kind of a a magic trick that not many people know, but it's uh, really useful. Once you know is that there's a lot of, of research and a lot of history on, on the topic you care about and, and if you go to the like the foundational work or if you know the like the the authors that like basically created the the area you're interested in you can go back and, and read like the seminal papers uh, which is easy to find because like papers in in research uh they have reference counts like the google algorithm which is how many other papers reference that paper So if you go to a topic and search for the most referenced papers and you read the first five and you read them in chronological order, you're kind of like reading the history of the topic. The only hard part is that in research, there's a lot of specialization and in different places, the same thing have different names. So... That's kind of what I'm trying to do with this uh, no code history series is I'm trying to connect the the no code like vocabulary, which is new, it may have less than 10 years with things that were similar and are part of the same history, but had different names in different years. Uh, in this 50s, 60s, it was called automatic computing. Then it became visual computing. Then it became either programming by example or programming by illustration, then end user computing. And now it's no code or code. And I'm trying to like fit everything into a single timeline. And so, so that the different communities can like see that there was activity somewhere else, but it just had a different name, but it's kind of the same thing. And, and like, if, if we get different communities talking to each other and sharing like learnings. We can get more ideas, go further, faster, but also avoid reinventing the wheel. So I, I started like one of my challenges was to define like a starting point. What, which is the like, can be say like the big bang of no code and the, the, this, the Geometer machine from uh, 59, I think it's kind of, there are some others in the, in the same years. But that's a good one to start. uh, Also because this is an exercise for me to define no code. Like what, like if you have like a checklist of things that you have to check to say this is no code and that's, and the, the thing about the, the geometry machine is that it's not visual, but even in the paper, they say why it's not visual. It's because they don't have the technology. They say like this, this machine could be fed by you drawing the the geometry in a paper and feeding it into a theoretical machine that could read your paper. And we could draw the, the, the geometry shapes in a screen, like if we had one, but they didn't. So like, they were limited by the technology, but they were thinking like, what if people could instruct a computer in a way that is not like writing textual code in a text file? So they were thinking like, if you feed me a a geometry shape, I will give you an answer in another geometry shape. So we are communicating in something that's not code, but like you're instructing me to do some work, some computation work and give you an answer to you. So that's kind of, uh, they were no code. If they could, they would have been no code. They had to have this textual language because there was no other way to uh, input this information to the computer. So that's so like, it's an interesting exercise to say like, where did it all begin and if they could, they would have made an old code geometry, theorem improver. And after that, like if you jump like five or 10 years, you start seeing the first attempts at, at visual, at showing information in a visual way, but also interacting with the computers without a keyword or without writing instructions in text. And the first attempts were like, they were proposing oscilloscopes, which is uh, something that uh, people in electronics used to measure things in electronics. But since they can like draw things, they were like using them as screens and they started playing before the mouse with something called like a light pen. They will like point a pen with some light into a screen and the screen will know where you're inputting the data because they had like a light sensor and. So they were already, like, playing with this way of, of interacting with the computer without having to write a code, all visual. And I, I tried to cover, like, I'm not going in chronological order, so I'm kind of jumping back and forth. But with time, I, I hope I to have, like, a timeline of of this.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, especially the fact that the main limiting factor was the lack of technology. Let me read a few quotes that you highlighted from the original paper there which one was about the the behavior of the system, right? So they say the behavior of the system would not be changed if the diagram computer were replaced by a device that could draw figures on paper and scan them. So they're still thinking about, you know, a physical device that was drawing images on paper and then some kind of a, a scanning uh, mechanism. Obviously, that was the original way a lot of this work that we come to expect now online was digitized, right? So a lot of the physical work that was there in the, the past few centuries has been now digitized to a large degree. But now we come to expect everything with an electronic version, but it wasn't always the case. And then they say our first system does not draw its own initial figure, but instead it's supplied with the diagram in the form of a list of possible coordinates for the points named in the theorem. And like the human mathematician, the geometry machine makes use of the potent heuristic properties of a diagram to help it distinguish the true from false sequences, thereby proving the theorem. So it's a really interesting way to come at it. I congrats on publishing that. And I'm actually looking forward to learning more uh, from some of the additional articles that you come out with, just investigating some of the history in the space. And I agree, like connecting these things in a timeline makes will, will probably help people that are new to the space connect some of the dots and then also find overlaps or intersections with other fields of computing that they might find beneficial for, for for their own personal journeys. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what to expect for the future of Instadec and for yourself. Like what what are your goals looking at the next, you know, two years? Cause the no code space is evolving so much. The last year in itself has seen a really large amount of funding being put into the space. Hopefully all of that translates into, you know, real world improvements to technology and, and just the ecosystem in general. Uh, there are more people using no-code tech now than there were, you know, before the pandemic started. So tell us a little bit about what the next two years look for you and for Instatech.
1: Um, yeah, the, the, I have like two main objectives for the next two years. One is, as we already talked, performance, being able to handle more data. Like with time, I want to expand the amount of work that can be done with this because the, the problem when you adopt a tool is when is this tool not going to be enough and I will have to learn another tool, like, and, and my idea is to like keep expanding the, the power of Easter faster than people can like <laughs> fill it with data or, or like at least at the pace of technology and hardware, so that more people can handle all the data they have all the time uh, without having to like, like batch it or see subsets or like do a query against the data or something like that. So uh, performance to, to make more use cases possible and uh, always having this instant feedback loop, not having to wait or, or anything. On the other side, more power for for interactive cases, and there's this new term that's starting to appear, which is called uh, data apps. You may recognize local tools like Retool, which mm-hmm. like I, I've already experienced it and within our projects. Which is there are two kinds of applications, like uh, applications where you write. Uh, And you're like inputting data a lot, and then you get some result back to make a decision, but mostly you are entering data. And these are most of the transactional applications and where people interact with the system by inputting data and seeing data back. But there's, there are other that are mostly internal or accessory applications that now they are being called data apps, which is, they are mostly ways to see data, to query data, to visualize data, to make decisions. And for example, there's a problem, a customer calls you and you need to bring some data about that customer to understand the problem and make a decision and inform the, the, this customer about the status and why things are happening. Or if you're, if there's a problem in your company and you want to see why you start like navigating around information to, to get an idea of what's going on. These are called data apps because they are mostly about reading. They are mostly about like getting data and, and, and visualizing it in different ways and navigating the data and they require like. Being able to access the data, to to modify it, to display it in different ways and to like the interactivity. Like if I click here, I want to see these details if I, or I want to navigate there, or I want to bring these two views together or switch to a different view or filter. They, they are mostly about like having a conversation with the data to, to get a sense of what's going on and make a decision. They are called ATAPs and. Uh, it is to go more into that direction, like to make it much easier to build these data. apps, which is like make it easy to consume data from more sources, make it easy to, to process it and display it in different ways, but also make it much easier to, to add interactivity, filtering, querying, navigation, and like sub views. They have different words for this. Uh, usually they called it in the business intelligence world, they call it drill down, which is when you go to, into detail or slice and dice, like a slice. Is when you filter and dice is when you like see different columns or something like that. But this, this is terminology for, from the business intelligence world. So we assumes yeah. you're dealing with tables, but in this case, you might be dealing with data in a CSV or an Excel spreadsheet or, or a stream. You cannot like slice or dice a stream of data. Yeah. And so our idea is to, to make it much. Mad- Easier and more powerful, uh, so easier for, for people to create these these, these data apps. And we have already seen it. It's interesting. There are a couple of dashboards uh, at customers that they created on the spot. That like there was a bug in production, and they created a dashboard to monitor the bug. And uh, wow. Like th- they needed something to see if it, uh, when it was happening, how often it was happening, if if, it was, if the fix were working or not, or stuff like that. So they created a the dashboard for a bug basically. And we have seen some of those and that made us create kind of an internal motto, which is uh, like creating these data, should be so easy that you can create one for, for one problem and throw it away. Like it should be so easy that it's like when you make a, like some, some notes in a piece of paper, it's so easy you don't care. You don't store everything, every note you write. Like uh, writing these data apps should be so easy that if you have a problem today, you create a data app, you solve it and you throw it away. And it's like, oh no, it took so much time or it was so hard. So our idea in the next two years is to make that a reality in a sense.
0: A use and throw data app. I I cannot wait for that. Mariano, it was really great to have you on the podcast. Thanks again for being here and for sharing your story with us. Why don't you give people a handoff to where they can find you? And uh, if they have any questions, where do they reach out to you?
1: Uh, I'm most actively active on Twitter and maybe you can write it in the notes Wariano uh, Guerra with a W instead of an M my complete name and my site for for the product this is install.com I'm also active in a community that's called future of coding which is a community of programmers that that are not satisfied with how programming is right now and what to make it more easy more accessible uh, and more democratic some of them are like in the no-code node co- node spectrum, like they want to create no-code tools. Some others want to create low-code tools, but we are all together trying to like share uh, our learnings and try to make it a, like a reality. So I'm also active there.
0: That's awesome. We'll have all of that in the show notes. Uh, thanks again, Mariano. It was a pleasure speaking with you.
1: Thanks for, for having me.
0: All right, that was the show. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed it and got a ton out of it. If you did, there are two things you need to do. Number one, make sure you subscribe to the show to get notified when a new No Code Story drops. And number two, I want to ask you a favor. Who's the one person you know who would absolutely benefit from hearing this story? Text them right now and send them to mynocodestory.com and reference this episode. Maybe they're an entrepreneur. Maybe they can use this episode to level up at their job. Or maybe they're just someone who loves creating new things. Do it. Subscribe and then send them the text. Make a difference. Thanks again and I'll see you on the next one.